Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to the China Geopolitics Podcast. My name is Jared Watt, coming to you from the studios of the South China Morning Post here in Hong Kong. This weekend will mark 200 days of Russia's invasion and war upon Ukraine. It's also roughly one month since the SEMP video team published an interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky directly appealing to China to use its influence on the UN Security Council to help end Russia's war upon his country. There's been no official reply from Beijing on that front, but there has been an official response for that other story that's dominating the news cycle since I began recording this week's episode. Xi Jinping, representing the Chinese government and the Chinese people, as well as in his own name, expresses deep condolences. Her passing is a great loss to the British people. That's the official response from Beijing to the news of the death of Queen Elizabeth II. It's interesting to note that a 25-year-old Elizabeth became queen one year before a baby Xi Jinping was born. Here in Hong Kong, the Cantonese nickname for the queen was Si Tao Pol, which translates as the boss lady. In today's episode, you're going to hear from our London correspondent Chad Bray about that other boss lady in the United Kingdom, the newly installed Prime Minister Liz Truss. Chad has the lowdown on the China hawks jockeying the position in her new cabinet and ministries, as well as what past comments from Liz Truss indicate about her future policies towards China, specifically if she's going to designate the UK's largest trading partner as a threat to national security, as she's previously promised. While we're talking about matters pertaining to Europe, next week will be a face-to-face meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. The last time they met, they declared China and Russia had a friendship that knew no limits. And about a week later, the Russian army invaded Ukraine. This week saw a significant new step in that no limits friendship, possibly also revealing more of Putin's strategy to defy Western sanctions. On one hand, he's threatening to turn the gas off in Europe. At the same time, he's doing deals to sell and supply much, much more of it to China. You're going to hear from political economy desk reporter Sichi Ji on some very interesting developments in China's relationship with Russia concerning oil and gas. And you're going to hear from my colleague on the China desk, William Zhang, about Xi Jinping's travel itinerary next week. While tens of millions of Chinese people face more zero COVID lockdowns and the manufacturing sector continues to struggle, Xi Jinping is leaving Greater China for the first time in two and a half years. He's headed first to Kazakhstan and then to Uzbekistan, where Xi and Putin will once again meet face-to-face when they attend the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting. They're going to be joined by leaders from Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Qatar, Iran, as well as a long list of leaders from other countries that have been excluded from Joe Biden's alliance-building exercises. It's a time of great change and challenge. Let's get amongst it. Chad Bray is our London correspondent and he's been leading our coverage on scmp.com of the UK leadership change, as well as providing analysis on the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Liz Truss. Welcome back, Chad. Well, Jared, it's, it's great to join you again uh, here from uh, 
for a moment, not rainy London. Um, it's been good, quite wet uh, in the past few days and, and just barely allowed uh, Liz Truss to give her first speech publicly outside. Chad, four prime ministers in six years. That's an almost Australian level of change outside of the usual democratic process of elections. What's the general perception of this unelected leader, Liz Truss, and how she contrasts with Boris Johnson? I presume she knows how to brush her hair. Well, yeah, yes, she does. Um, you know, it, it, it's quite a fascinating time here in the UK because, you know, we've had a conservative government for 12 years. But in the last six, we've had four different prime ministers and Boris Johnson, you know, won a, a vast majority in 2019 for the conservatives. And now he's gone and uh, Liz Truss is in and, and she's just starting to sort of, you know, get her feet under her as as prime minister. And there's a lot on the table right now. You know, later today, you know, it, it, you know, we're recording this podcast on, on Thursday. Uh, later today, she's supposed to announce her ability to address the cost of living crisis with energy. And that's going to be a huge deal domestically for her. Yes, indeed. And I see another echo of conservative politics from Australia uh, with comments attributed to Liz Truss. You know, the former government of Scott Morrison wanted Australia to prepare for war with its largest trading partner. Is it true that Liz Truss wants to designate the UK's largest trading partner as a threat to national security, the same status it gives to Russia? Well, you know, it's interesting. So so China is the largest uh, uh, trading partner in terms of goods imported. It's the third largest overall in terms of, of goods imported and exported. But, um, you know, the discussion has been that she wants to uh, reopen a defense review and security review that was done last year and turn them from a systemic competitor to a threat on the level of Russia. Now, Obviously, because of the domestic issues they're brewing right now, we've not heard a lot about China yet. But this could be quite interesting with her government because within that, we've seen um, her appoint a foreign secretary who has most of his you know, background is as a junior minister, not really as a cabinet um, secretary. He only took a cabinet role um, two months ago with many ministers abandoned Boris Johnson and he was education secretary then. Um, but uh, James Cleverly, he has you know, been a trust supporter and, and really has echoed her concerns about China when it comes to public comments on this, particularly during the leadership race. At the same time, the new security minister is Tom uh, Tuggenhat, and he was the chair of the Foreign Affairs uh, Select Committee. And Tom is, is one of the conservatives that's behind the China Research Group. And they are very much targeting China in terms of trying to ban Confucius Institutes, trying to ban Hike Vision, um, you know, really trying to cut back on the UK's reliance on China. So it's, it, it's really setting a stage for what could be an interesting confrontation, particularly when you have a new prime minister that is quite direct in her comments. And it'll be interesting to see if, if uh, Xi Jinping and Liz Truss you know, speak soon. She's already spoken with Joe Biden this week. And one of the first things they talked about in, in that phone call was about AUKUS and, and talking about the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, I think it's going to be a major issue. It just may be a distraction right now from what's going on domestically. 
Well, no doubt there's a lot on her plate. There's also the ongoing issue of B&O visas being granted to Hong Kong residents. Uh, there's the issue of Xinjiang and the latest report from the UN. Uh, there's all manner of issues for her to pick up. But I do see from one of your stories filed not long ago that one of the major pushes within the UK political establishment was to remove Chinese investment from its nuclear industry. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, sure. It's, you know, it, it's an interesting situation because of this energy crisis. The UK is trying to figure out how are we going to become more self-reliant in terms of energy. And one of the big pushes is to rely more on nuclear. And, you know, there's not been a new nuclear plant built in the United Kingdom for decades. And there's a project right now called Sizewell C um, that they are, are, are trying to build. And the government just in the past week, as, uh, as Johnson was on his way out, confirmed that they were going to invest about 700 million pounds into this project. What they're doing, though, is they're trying to take China General Nuclear out of the mix on this project because they were a minority partner. The designs for the plan are based on Chinese designs, which they've agreed to allow those to go forward. But, you know, because of the sort of lack of, of technical know-how in terms of building a new plant, they've had to rely upon China for, for those designs because China has been building nuclear plants at a pace faster than about anybody in the world in the past few years. And so what they're trying to do is, is the French energy giant, EDF, they remain um, the majority partner on it. The UK government is going to buy in and get about 20% of the project. And then they're trying to bring in other investors so that China is not part of it. It's part of a ongoing thing within the government and a debate that's been going on through several prime ministers, really since Cameron left office, to try to take China out of the mix when it comes to critical infrastructure whether it's telecommunications, whether it's security cameras that are around, um, you know, everything from council states to government offices to the nuclear industry. And, you know, it's really going to be a fascinating, you know, few years here because so much technology is being developed in China, or at least components for it are. And how can you be self-reliant? I mean, just this week, the F-35 program in the U.S. was apparently uh, delayed for deliveries because there's a component that's made in China. And does that work with the you know, new U.S. standards for not taking materials from China for super sensitive projects like that? Well, Chad, last week we heard from Finbar Birmingham on the explosive report from the United Nations suggesting there could be crimes against humanity being committed in Xinjiang. We've seen the US Congress get behind bans on goods manufactured or sourced from Xinjiang. Is there any suggestion that the UK might echo or follow that same kind of path in delivering sanctions on goods coming from Xinjiang? Yeah, it, 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 the UK may be at a crossroads because, um, you know, for, for several years, uh, you know, we, we've had a debate going on in, in Parliament. And Parliament itself, the Commons, passed a, a bill saying that genocide had been committed there. But the UK government's position has been, we can't declare something a genocide unless a international court has done so. And, and so that they've really sort of passed the ball to the international courts of justice rather than actually making a declaration themselves. Now, Liz Truss, there, there's been some reports during the leadership race of, of her suggesting that, that she might go ahead and declare it a genocide. 
But she was foreign secretary. She was very much part of that government when they refused to do that. So it's sort of hard to see her make that change. However, as we discussed earlier, the new security minister, Tom Tugendhat, he is someone who has been advocating for bans on goods from Xinjiang, on on declaring um, it a genocide. Uh, The Foreign Affairs Select Committee, which he chaired um, before this, uh, put out a report on this a few years ago. And they also, very similar to the United Nations, having that critical eye on it. He wrote an editorial two days before he entered government in which he basically called for a ban on goods from there, whether it be cotton or potentially, and he didn't say this specifically, but cameras and other things made by Hike Vision. Um, they have been someone who have been in the crosshairs here by a number of members of parliament about trying to sort of ban their use of their cameras within government offices and you know, the government says they have the ability to do it with a bill that's moving through parliament right now, but they haven't done anything. And so, you know, that could be an issue that we could see in the coming months, particularly when you have people who are more vocal about this now within government. At the same time, there's an interesting sideline that's going on. Since Tuganat left the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, we now have several China Hawks who are sort of circling, trying to take it over. Alicia Kearns, who is um, his co-chair at the China Research Group, she wants to be the new chair. And so does Ian Duncan Smith. Um, He's the former conservative leader who also has been hugely critical about China. In fact, both of them are facing sanctions from the Chinese government at the moment. And so it will be really interesting to see what these folks have to say and if having more people within power to do something about it will change the course of of where we're headed. There's a lot going on, Chad Bray, and there is, of course, much more going on for Liz Truss, a collapsing health system, an economy being hit by massive rises in prices on food, cost of living, as we call them, a lot going on domestically before she gets on a plane and flies to Jakarta for a G20 meeting, along with Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin. We'll look for your reporting and analysis on scp.com as ever. Thank you kindly. Thanks, Jared. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com slash newsletters. William Jung is a senior correspondent with the China Desk here at the South China Morning Post. And for the first time in a long time, we are physically in the same room. Welcome back, William. Well, it, it seems to be like ages well, since our previous session. It's great to be off Zoom and here in person, William. Can we talk about Xi Jinping's travel plans next week, starting with his first international trip outside of greater China in two years to Kazakhstan? What's the significance of this? Why is this important? Probably now everyone knows that this is the first trip of China's uh, paramount leader who is uh, finally uh, going to set foot outside the country after his trip to Myanmar in 2020. Because of Beijing's strict COVID policies, uh, most of uh, Xi and his colleagues haven't been doing any uh, international travel except for Yang Jiechi, who is the, the party's uh, top diplomat. So he have to, uh, Yang have to fly a lot 
but uh, not others. Everybody was grounded. Well, I would say that Wang Yi has been putting in a lot of miles uh, around the Pacific in a diplomatic contest for friendship with Penny Wong, Australia's foreign minister. Uh, but, however, uh, Wang Yi is not a Politburo member. So in the way that Wang uh, is largely uh, regarded as the successor of Yang Jiechi, who uh, most of the people would, would believe that Yang has hit the retirement age. Um, he is uh, over 70. So uh, very likely on this uh, party congress, he will retire. And Wang Yi is uh, widely regarded as one of the candidates to take over the party's uh, top uh, foreign affairs chief. So uh, why this trip is very important? First of all, from this trip, we will be able to see how confident she is before the party congress. Let's set the record straight. The Chinese MFA have not officially uh, announced Xi's trip, but so far, all this uh, Xi's trip has been announced by the uh, uh, various governments uh, MFAs were, uh, and the Russians, the Kazakhstan MFA and all that, but Chinese has not confirmed the trip yet. Okay. However, m- most of the people would, would think that it's time for him to travel, where uh, he's a second man. Uh, the Chinese speaker Li Zhanshu has already traveled to Russia to attend the Far East uh, economic event, where there he met Putin. So in in this case, uh, we do believe that there is a very high chance that he will go and uh, attend something that's very dear to him, where Kazakhstan is the beginning of his uh, Belt and Road Initiative, where he raised it uh, a decade ago. And number two, another thing very, very close to his heart is the Shanghai Corporation Organization. And they are going to have a huge summit there. So, um, if you look, uh, if you watch the video uh, of uh, Li Zhanshu's uh, visit to Russia, he's not wearing mask when he appeared with Putin and all other leaders. So that's a very interesting, uh, in- interesting twist here. Where uh, within China, if you uh, if you watch the. Uh, primetime news bulletins. Whenever Xi or Li Zhanshu, those uh, Politburo Standing Committee members, the top seven in China, when they are ins- inspecting China's provinces and all this, one clear rule is indoor, they wear masks, but they remove it when they are outdoor. So this time you see that uh, Li Zhanshu, within this, uh, in the indoor occasion, he is taking his mask off. So that shows, number one, they are more confident in uh, their ability to handle the COVID, uh, at least the health impact on the leadership. Um, number two, I think Xi, if he, he made the trip, it's a great uh, signal to domestic uh, crowd whether uh, when he, can, he can really show a gesture of confidence where now I can leave the, the country and uh, I'm, uh, we have ways to contain COVID and I'm not worried about domestic uh, uh, potential problems and uh, I believe uh, the party will handle it well while I'm out 
and the, and uh, there would be no major hiccups for the party congress which is coming. So uh, it's quite important for Xi to project this kind of strong image as uh, uh, as before the party congress, he cannot be seen as weak. He must be appear as very strong, confident, and uh, always in control. William, I have to just mention from our viewpoint here in Hong Kong, the optics of Xi Jinping, as you say, showing his strength, his ability to leave mainland China and visit Kazakhstan. Meanwhile, in Chengdu, there's people aren't allowed to leave their buildings, even though there's been an earthquake. It seems quite a jarring contrast. We'll see how the impact of that sort of plays out. But can I turn to you? You mentioned this meeting that comes after Kazakhstan, this one in Uzbekistan, and that is for the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Of course, all eyes will be on this forecast meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, but I think it's important to note that the Shanghai Cooperation Organization includes China, Russia, India, the country sometimes referred to as the stands, Pakistan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. That's very interesting, the importance of this meeting. Can you tell us about what that means? This year, I, I believe, one of the main themes is the organisation will see a lot of new members, a lot of new observers being added to the list. All of them are not the typical allies of the US. It's very important platform for China, where it's named after China's, one of the China's major city and started by Xi, with China and Russia playing the central role. So, of course, when they are now facing a common enemy of the United States and the Western allies, they are pulling in more allies um, to counter that. Especially this year, some of the, uh, some of the very interesting additions were after seeing Iran, uh, it's already confirmed a status, uh, but they are going to sign the memorandum of the uh, membership responsibilities and all this in the in this coming summit, and you will be seeing that uh, Egypt, Qatar, Saudi Arabia would all be added as the dialogue partners. How many of them are oil producers? Yeah, let's look at it. Right, they are going to start the process of uh, accepting Belarus, another Russian ally. And uh, they would kickstart the process of uh, adding Bahrain and uh, Maldives as dialogue partner. And uh, in the pipeline, you have Azerbaijan, Armenia, Cambodia, Nepal, and as observers. So a broad picture is while America is expanding its uh, allies network through different mechanisms, G7 and NATO, And the Quad uh, and AUKUS, all of these alliances that that Biden has brought together, yes. But Xi Jinping and Putin are are working together to expand their network of friends. So yes, increasingly we are seeing a divider wall where uh, you have to choose sides, right? That is why um, China has been saying that for SCO, the Shanghai uh, Corporation Organization, it's a more diverse body where its members does not host one single ideology. We have different uh, governance model, different re- we believe in different religion, but uh, we can come together to discuss all the issues that's close to our heart. Most of the observers would say that this round, 
uh, a few things will, will definitely be prominently featured. Number one, would there be a simplification of the joining process? Because after Iran waited for 13 years to join SEO, and there's a long queue of, uh, uh, of people who want to join. So would there be a simplification of the process that uh, make it uh, faster or easier uh, for other countries to join? That's one, uh, one possibility there. And of course, two very prime issues will be the Ukrainian war, the, the war in Ukraine and uh, Afghanistan. Where, uh, of course, when Russia is there, it's quite tricky to talk about Ukraine. But uh, I think so far, a lot of uh, SEO members are trying to broker a deal, a peace deal for uh, Russia and Ukraine. Many of these nations did not recognize the two Crimea states. Yeah, So uh, it's very interesting to see how these things uh, play out under Russia's dominance. There, there will be new dynamics, I believe. Uh, however, Afghanistan, many of these uh, stunts, like what you say, and China will share the same anti-terrorism uh, concerns, where, uh, of course, Xinjiang has now been uh, more mentioned in the human rights abuse angle uh, on Beijing. However, there has been lots of uh, uh, act of terrorism. Uh, that's what Beijing said in, in Xinjiang, but we do have uh, reports seeing that there have been attacks uh, here and there during uh, a decade ago. So would there be a resumption of that? Beijing is, of course, very worried. And that is why Beijing will definitely continue its discussion with all the stunts to how to better manage Afghanistan after U.S. withdrawal. So in fact, that's, that would be another key element that we should look at. And of course, that before this uh, summit, there has been a defense minister meeting where we have, we have seen a whole list of joint exercises uh, among the member uh, states. So um, let's see, that, that should be uh, the key themes of this, this one. And of course, the energy corporations where when you see the big names like Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, all these oil-producing countries are all there. So uh, it, it would be very interesting. It will, of course, be very interesting. And we'll hear more in detail from City G about this very important decision by Russia and China to begin dealing not in the US greenback anymore, but in yuan and rubles in the massive sales of natural gas from Russia to China. William, there's going to be a very busy week ahead for you uh, following Xi Jinping, his travel plans, and of course, this meeting of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Thank you very much for your time. Speak to you soon. Yeah, thank you. Now, the headlines concerning Russia's massive reserves of natural gas are mostly all about Vladimir Putin shutting off supply to Europe. But while he's overseeing the shutting of valves on the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, he's also overseeing a major pivot towards China as its new VIP customer with its own pipeline. Almost exactly one week before Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin are scheduled to meet on the sidelines of the Shanghai Organisation of Cooperation in Uzbekistan, came a major announcement from Russia that it will no longer be using the US dollar in its multi-billion dollar oil and gas sales to China. It's going to be using the yuan and the ruble. 
Sitchi G is a reporter with our political economy desk. Now, last week, she was on our sister podcast, Inside China, talking about the economic impact of the Sichuan heatwave, but she's also been following and filing on this story. Welcome back, Sitchi. Thank you, Jarrett. It's great to have you back. Sitchi, I have the announcement that came on Tuesday from Russia's state-owned oil company, Gazprom. This is what it said. A transition was made to making payments for Russian gas supplies to China in the national currencies of the countries, the ruble and yuan. Can you explain that for us? So just as you said, it means China will pay Russia with yuan and ruble for pipeline gas in the future instead of U.S. dollars and euros, which are the more common currencies in international energy trade. And Russian President Vladimir Putin also announced yesterday that it will be half in yuan and half in ruble. But interestingly, the Chinese side, including the state-owned CNPC, China National Petroleum Corporation, so far has not mentioned a word about this new payment mechanism. But according to Gazprom, this new payment method is part of the additional agreements between the two companies on the Eastern Route Pipeline, which is also known as the Power of Siberia Pipeline, that goes from the far eastern area of Russia and enters China from its northeast. While the two countries also have another pipeline that is planned to be constructed within years, which also goes through Mongolia. So many experts said that in the future, there will be more and more Russian gas being redirected from Europe to China. This really looks like a significant pivot being unveiled here, both in infrastructure and the way the actual gas is paid for by China. What are analysts and economists telling you about this? What is the overall symbolism or what does this mean? First of all, Uh, both China and Russia have been thinking about insulating themselves from Western pressure by increasing the use of their own currencies in international trade. Uh, For example, Russia demanded European countries to pay for their gas in rubles as well. And on the Chinese side, China is striving for the internationalization of renminbi for years, though its capital control has made this quite difficult in past years. So experts said it's entirely conceivable for the two sides to start trading in its own currencies first. I'm guessing this sent shockwaves through markets. Western analysts, Western traders had really become used to the idea of, you know, sanctions upon Russia were as easy as saying, we're not doing business with you anymore. You're cut out of the international SWIFT system but it seems like Russia and China's strategic goals are joining here. They want a separate system to the US-dominated financial system. Yes, that's true. And I think Chinese buyers are getting more and more comfortable with buying Russian commodities in recent months, uh, especially compared to when the war just started. Because at that time, especially those big multinational companies in China They were concerned that their businesses, maybe in Western countries, might be affected if they increase their buyings from Russia. But then as the time goes by, it is getting clearer that they will not be sanctioned if it's just simply energy trade. And also for some small independent refiners in China, 
many of them don't really care about the secondary sanctions because they're too small to operate in Western countries. But in the beginning, in March and April, there were uncertainties around payment and shipping for Russian crude. But once these were solved, they were more than happy to buy Russian crude simply because it's much cheaper than those from other sources. That's really interesting, Sichi. Now, as I mentioned in my introduction, there's a lot of focus on how Russia is turning off or threatening to turn off its supply of gas to Europe. Are we seeing a corresponding increase of supply to China? I would say yes, but the first thing to bear in mind is that from the demand side, China's economy is experiencing multiple headwinds right now. So its appetite for energy right now has been largely suppressed. So it does not mean that China can absorb as much as Russian energy as possible if they want to. But still, China's imports of Russian natural gas have grown this year, while its imports from most other countries have declined. For example, in the first seven months this year, China bought a total of 2.76 million tons of liquefied natural gas from Russia. Uh, That's the Chinese customs figures. And the import volume increased by 27.4% year on year. And the customs data also showed that the value of pipeline natural gas coming from Russia almost tripled in the first seven months this year. But one tricky thing about the pipeline gas trade is that China customs have stopped publicizing the breakdown in trade volume for, for pipeline gas since the beginning of this year. And the customs spokesman confirmed this in July that the move was to protect the legitimate business rights and interests of relevant importers and exporters. So basically, experts said this is maybe they don't want to show that Russian pipeline gas is sold to China at a much lower rate compared to the current spot market price, though it actually makes sense because this supply is based on long term contracts. Despite that, uh, Gazprom said earlier this year that its supply of pipeline gas to China increased by more than 60% in the first half of this year. Again, this is really interesting because I think we can see in a broader context geopolitics tying in with the politics of energy. You know, you've just spent a week or two looking at how China's reliance on hydroelectricity in southwest Sichuan province has resulted in finding out its limitations when there's a heat wave and there's no water. The ongoing dispute with Australia, I see that Australia's liquid natural gas sales to China reached a record 30 million tonnes in the last financial year. There's clearly a sign here that China is really getting much closer to Russia than it has in the years past. Sichi, what's your forecast of what to look for and what's going to happen in the months to come? Basically, I think it makes sense that Chinese companies are buying from Russia because they don't have this burden of morality that they should reduce purchases from Russia like their Western counterparts just because Russian crude is much cheaper compared with other parts of the world. And the thing about the future of this trade is not only about the supply from Russia, even though Russia right now has more energy to sell to China because 
their former European buyers are shunning their commodities. That does not mean that China can buy them all, because China has been doubling down its zero COVID policy. The zero COVID policy means there will be many lockdowns around the country, and lockdowns means the factories cannot operate, and there will be much less interprovincial travels. So the need for energy and for gasolines are much lower compared with maybe last year. So whether China can absorb more Russian energy is not clear. And with 21 million people in Chengdu finding out their lockdown is going to be ongoing with no sign of an end, that really is a very important thing to raise. Siti G, we're going to follow your reporting on SEMP.com as ever. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Gerald. That's all for this week's China Geopolitics podcast. Don't forget, you'll read all the best insights and analysis from next week's Shanghai Cooperation Organization meeting on SEMP.com. You can follow City G and the Political Economy team on Twitter at SEMP Economy. Chad Bray is at Chad Bray. Until next week, stay safe, stay sane, and stay in touch. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news: ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free, or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.